As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Joining me this week, we have Rory K. Smith, Ollie K., and Matt Dickinson. Leicester City, they are, they are champions. The headline in today's Times suggests that you would have got better odds on finding Elvis alive. And no, I didn't write the script. Uh, Dicko, is the king now truly alive and kicking? It is the greatest story, isn't it? In, in certainly my sporting lifetime, it's the, um, certainly the biggest upset. It's, it's everything. It's, it's one of those things you probably rarely in football, you can't overhype just the scale of it in so many different ways, isn't it? It's the way we've been conditioned to thinking this is the era of the mega club, the super club, the the rich elite. It's the way we've just been conditioned to thinking that, you know, okay, maybe a, a plucky sort of middle-class club might um, just have a sort of tilt at the edges of Europe, possibly. We've been conditioned to thinking Ranieri wasn't a winner, into thinking people like Danny Simpson and, and so many others were just journeyman footballers. So it's... Um, it's glorious in so many ways, and, and glorious for Leicester, but just glorious for sports, for football, for allowing an awful lot of other teams, clubs, to, to think, well, maybe if we get things right and do well, who knows? Maybe, maybe it could be our turn. Ollie, you tweeted about this, and I think, like me, I, I suspect you, you struggled to, to sort of go beyond football to find examples in, in other <laughs> sports of upsets. And there have been remarkable upsets in, in one-offs, I mean, just in my lifetime, I'm thinking of Buster Douglas uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and Tyson. You know, people talk about the miracle on ice. People talk about Greece in year 2004. But the remarkable thing about this is that it lasted 10 months. And I, I couldn't find any example from, from any other sport of, of a situation like this. One of the things that w- was proposed when I was looking at, you know, looking at greatest sporting triumphs of all time, I mean, w- one of them was the Super Bowl in 2008, which New York Giants, New England Patriots. Now, American sport is by its nature, it, it is very equal, it's very egalitarian, the way money's distributed, the draft systems, etc. Everything about European football in particular, well, well, particularly over the Champions League era, is the opposite of that. It's very hierarchical. It's very, very difficult for, for clubs to bridge financial divides. You look across Europe now, you see teams winning the, the league umpteen times in a row in Greece. You see it's five times in a row for Celtic in Scotland. PSG are going to dominate um, for a long, long time to come. And people will say, and people, you know, I, I saw a few tweets last night of, of, of people say, oh, you'd only get this in the Premier League. Well, this is completely contrary to everything that's been happening in the Premier League era. The Premier League era has been, yes, 
four four different title winners over four past four seasons now, but everything has been about domination by the money. You know, the big rich teams, whether they're natural resources or whether they're um, you know the resources of people like Blackburn, Manchester City, Chelsea, who've bought their way to the top. The Premier League has been beyond Liverpool. It's been beyond Arsenal. If Tottenham had won it, it would have been incredible in many ways because they've only got the sixth biggest budget. And for Leicester to have done it, it's just it, it, it is absolutely ridiculous. And I remember saying around Christmas time, you know, this was Southampton or West Ham or even Stoke doing this or Everton doing this. We'd be saying, my, my God, this is incredible. And I think probably we've become less and less surprised as the season has gone on. But it is, I, I think, just absolutely astonishing that they've done it. Well, I was going to say over 30, well, is it, 38 games, point, but it's 36 it, games. They've done it with two games to start. Diego? And even on that point, I mean, it's as, uh, Ollie says we've sort of become sort of less surprised. But I mean, I have to say, you know, I think I'll have to hold up my hand that, you know, even even a month ago, I was sort of telling myself, no, you know, and when when's the wobble coming and when's the panic going to set in? I mean, obviously, you know, you turn back to last August and the idea of someone saying to you, you know what, I, you know, I just got a sneaky, sneaky feeling for Leicester to come in the, the top six, you'd have laughed at them, to the top eight. But uh, it's the fact that even, you know, even a month ago, again, I think we we're all such a shock that we're all thinking, well, they must wobble, they must wobble, there must be a panic. Man City must win, you know, six on the bounce and, and sort of restore the natural order of things. So most of us say even, even three or four games ago, we're thinking, will they panic? So the, the, the remarkable thing, too, about this, uh, Rory, and, and what sets it apart from situations like the one that was mentioned to Ollie about the, 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 the Giants uh, in, in the Super Bowl in 2008 is that Leicester were the best team in the Premier League this season. If, if you look at, you know, by, by whatever, whatever angle you want to look at it, if you, if you want to look at the, the points differential over the second-place team, if you want to look at... Your, your fancy expected goals models that they all have Arsenal, Spurs, and Leicester neck and neck. Whereas, you know, the Giants in 2008, that was dramatic because I believe that was the year of the, 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 the him catching the ball off his helmet and everything. But there was a degree of, of happenstance in that game. There was a degree of probability, and they weren't the best team throughout the season. They didn't have the best record. It doesn't make any sense, does it, Rory? Ditto touched on it. Leicester sort of uh, inverts a lot of the, the things that we're told to be true, that... that and that's what's kind of fascinating about it. So not just things like Ranieri, you know, always comes second. Ranieri can't win. There's that kind of narrative truth that we're told. But there's there's other stuff. There's the way they play, not in the sense that oh, we know we should all be looking to to hit you know hit hit goal in three passes now. But they run against a lot of the things that we were told were kind of the trends in football. Things like not having a ball playing central defender. So most most top teams now prioritise in scouting central defenders. You need someone to build the ball from the back, whether you are a Barcelona-style kind of possession team or a Dortmund-style sort of counter-punching team. You need that ball playing central defender to kick-start attacks. Leicester don't. They contradicts a lot of the things we're told about scouting and where talent lies. They contradict a lot of the things we're told about the progression through the through the ranks, through the leads. There's a lot of stuff that Leicester kind of have completely inverted and that's what's astonishing. They challenge a huge amount of conventional wisdom in football. Well, here, here's so another... yes, it doesn't make sense if you assume that the conventional wisdom was entirely correct, but I think it probably wasn't. And I, th- I think there is now an element... We're going to hear this phrase, I want to do a Leicester. Zach Goldsmith used it this morning 
in the completely the wrong context. Well, but why, why is it wrong for Zach Goldsmith? I mean, he's somebody who hard scrabble, comes from the lower classes, worked his way up. <laughs> but yeah, he's I'm, never look, had any privilege in his life. No one it's much is, like Lester. No one is saying in this room, Gab, that Zach Goldsmith is anything other than a scrappy working class hero. But the context in which he used it was, I want to come from behind and win. Lester haven't come from behind and won. They've been been top since when November. Yeah, that's and another one. It, it, the thing about the fan convention, I mean. Uh, we could actually make a little list about this. You know, one is obviously we said that you know Ranieri's some kind of preternatural loser. Although, funny enough, I mean he he actually did win leagues in the past, albeit the lower leagues, and he did win cups and whatever. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I have a point on that. It's just that I I did a piece on Ranieri on uh, last week that was in the paper on Saturday, and in the course of speaking to people who've worked with him, what kind of occurred is there is this one traditional way of looking at Ranieri's career which is he's the nearly man he always he can take you to a certain level but never beyond it but you can flip that the other way and say well for 30 years he's been getting really really close to winning the title his record is actually amazing it's and it, it becomes a fluke a cra- like a crazy fluke that he never won a league that's, that's, that's what I was going to that, say that, that, that's one way to look at it I don't know how accurate it is but um, I'm actually writing a, a biography of one Claudio Ranieri so I hope to get to the bottom of that when is that out? And uh, in, in September Ooh, inshallah something, something to look forward to for everybody exactly but and, and I guess I'll, I'll direct this question to, to you Ollie there's obviously some incredible individual uh, characters incredible stories on this team but one other bit of conventional wisdom which, which I th- found remarkable is I took the time to go through all these Leicester players and I looked at what these people had won in their careers. You know, because mm-hmm. there's people, people go on and on. Well, the winning mentality that, like, say, Mourinho has, and when you've won, you win more, and blah, blah, blah. You know, in this entire Leicester team, and I might be forgetting somebody, but I think I'm accurate, at least of the starters, you've got Ujoa, who won, like, the Argentine second division, and I think he, he won the, the Clausura or something, but he was the last guy off the bench when he was, like, a teenager. Robert Huth obviously won titles at Chelsea, where he was the fourth central defender and you know, hardly ever emergency played. Emergency striker. I'm sorry, an emergency striker, yeah. yeah, under Claudio when they didn't win. And you have Okazaki, who won the Asian Cup uh, with, uh, with Alberto Zaccheroni, naturally an Italian manager, winner. But that's it. None of these other people. I, I, don't, I don't know if Danny Simpson and Drinkwater got you know, some kind of like chocolate Hanukkah Gelt medal for, uh, for, for when, when they were in the youth team and, and United won things, but... These people aren't winners. There's no such thing as winners. And and then that's another thing we're told, right? We're told like so and so is a winner. These mm. people aren't. They're they're they're, they're losers. They're mediocrities <laughs> who who've many of whom have overcome incredible personal hardship as well. And mm. and, and they've won things. Well, yeah, I mean there, there was the fact that they, that they won the championship 2 years ago, but then again, people aren't exactly looking at the Burnley squad who who have just come up and saying, well, this experience is going to help them win the Premier League in two years' time. I mean, it, it is it is truly extraordinary. I mean, I, I know it's just probably boring to keep, to keep saying it is amazing, but it really is, and, and we haven't seen anything like it before. I mean, you, you talk about losers. Somebody like Mark Albrighton, who I thought had a really good few months when he first broke into Aston Villa team, I thought he looked really promising. And then he just sort of drifted out of the team under under Lambert and just sort of disappeared and was released on a free transfer and it wasn't exactly a big scramble for his services. Leicester picked him up and suddenly all you know, although he hasn't been playing as much the last couple of weeks, I mean he has looked a really, really good player. He's looked like one of the best wingers in English football. Um, you know, hasn't been close to the England squad. And if you look at last season they had Cambiasso and Cambiasso was perceived to be the player who had that experience, who stopped a group of Losers, to use your term, um, dropping into into 
the championship and he was perceived to be the one who kept them above. When he left, they signed Inla, which again, it sort of made, made sense, like, like flight, but, he, but he's, He's barely appeared, has it? I mean, he's, he's, yeah. he's barely he's the, been that, on the bench. And, that's one of the most mystifying things about this. Also, it's been, I mean, you know, on the one hand, this is a quite rightly being regarded as the great inspirational story, the sort of sense of, you know, Leicester, this, you know, town in the East Midlands, if, if they can do it, anyone can. But actually, we come back to the fact that so much has to fall right. And mm. uh, so, so many things, you know, you, you've got to get a system that that just clicks and brings absolute. I mean, all these players. O'Brien's a good player, but he's probably you know had a sustained form of life. There's that sort of elusive morale, team spirit that just somehow gets on a roll. Well, he suffered personal tragedy as well. They haven't had injuries. There's just there's been a sense of you know obviously they're going to have European football next year, which is going to be a colossal you know burden, um, a, a very happy burden, but it's going to completely change the dynamic uh, of their season. You're maybe not going to get Vardy on a uh, the consistency is or Mares or I mean there's just so many little little things that you know have gone right and they've gone right because of either good players, good management, but also a bit of luck um, and and it doesn't take you know two it only takes two or three of those little things to go wrong to suddenly remind us how extraordinary this year was. It, it is it is remarkable. Obviously, one other factor which um, which helped them. No question about it, is that the other big boys, I think, all underachieved. And, and they really underachieved horribly. I mean, you know, if you're Manchester United, I mean, or, or Manchester City, or Chelsea, or Liverpool, or indeed Arsenal, you know, you look at this and you say, you know what? You know, Ar- you, you, Arsenal did not underachieve. Mm-hmm. Arsenal achieved exactly what Arsenal always achieve. That, that, that's I, I think that's, that's trite and silly. Arsenal finished behind Spurs and Leicester. The true they don't mirac- always finish behind Spurs and Leicester. The true miracle of this season is that when everything changed, Arsenal stood still, okay. and I think we should thank but, them for that. But, but I, I think evidence of the fact that they underachieved yes. is that no, of those joking. five clubs, other than Arsenal, who are you know, in the, their own little world, the other four have either changed managers or will change their manager. But there's also things that went badly wrong for Leicester. And I'll give you one example, which I think has been overlooked. Their recruitment has been praised by everybody. And, you know, you, you, and I think you've written about the guy Steve Walsh, who isn't that Steve Walsh, but is a different Steve Walsh, and, and his friend Wigglesworth, who then, who's, he's like some kind of analytic scouting genius, and then he went and he joined Arsenal. Though I guess there wasn't much to scout at Arsenal because all they signed was Peter Cech. But, you know, hopefully he'll have more work ne- next year. I've actually looked at Leicester City signings, and, and this to me just kind of, this kind of baffled me. So the 10 most expensive signings in Leicester's history, and funny enough, our friend James Scowcroft is number 10, by the way. Nice. Just gives you an idea of, and this was many, many years ago, just shows you what a player he was or or how expensive (laughs) he was. So eight of those 10 have come in the last two years, right, Mm -hmm. with with Steve Walsh and, you know, this, this regime. Of those eight expensive signings that they've had, only two, Conte and Okazaki, who, by the way, I think scored one goal this season, only those two are regulars in the Leicester team. So you've got Joa, who's a, sort of the first substitute. So you've got, you've got people like Kramerich, yeah. who's their most expensive player. Inler, who mm-hmm. I don't think has played since, since January and couldn't get on the pitch. And again, he couldn't ben get on the pitch. Sorry? Ben Luan. Ben, ben Luan's the big one. Ben mm-hmm. Luan, they, they, they spent, I think, £6 million on. Mm-hmm. This guy played twice. I could have probably told them that, look, 
Ben Wallan is a little bit psychopathic. You know, I know you want to get him on the pitch, but but whatever. I, I thought and Ben Wallan, I'm also told, was a player that Ranieri really wanted because he thought he was hard and that's what they needed. So I think it goes to show, A, that recruitment is far from an exact science. And I'm not suggesting that Steve Walsh ha- a, and, and his people haven't done well because obviously they have through, you know, look at Fuchs and, and Al Brighton and... Uh, um, and obviously Mares, but is that not the point? Is that so? So yes, but but I'm saying that kind of defies conventional wisdom too, right? The fact that you can actually get so many things wrong, you can you can spend so much money badly if you like, mm-hmm. but in the end come out ahead because you get these other things right. So what I would say to that, Dab, and I take your point entirely, no scouting system, whether it's numbers-based or non-numbers-based, or this, or they do this, or they do that, or they kind of dress up like dinosaurs and they don't watch the players, so that makes them play better or whatever. None of them are perfect. I would actually say that Leicester's recruitment, and you're right that it's it's interesting the big money signings haven't yeah, it's, I mean, worked it's, out. It's there, there, there is a there's there's a sort of shadow of a pattern there. But I would say that if you're getting say a fifty percent strike rate from your signings, you are way ahead of most teams. That's that's what recruitment people keep telling you so that they can hang on their, to their job <laughs> and, yeah. and look good. Um, I think that's probably fair. There's so many factors and it's almost it's almost entirely arbitrary that so I would say that Leicester, I, yes, haven't been perfect and to dress them up as perfect. And this is really important because the other interesting thing about Leicester is their impact on what happens next, like what Leicester, what this will do for English football for the Premier League. And one of the things that it should not do is convince everybody they have to behave in no, any number of ways exactly like Leicester. There is an element of random choice here. That it, it happened to be Leicester who... Was found themselves in the eye of the perfect storm, and that's amazing. It's an amazing story, but they are they do not represent a blueprint necessarily. No, and, and I would agree with that. Uh, although perhaps they're a bit of a blueprint in the way that guys like like King and Ujoa, who'd been important players before, the way the manager kept them in the squad, kept them involved. I mean, I think that's something that's that's, that's often overlooked when we talk about man management. The thing, the thing I think I admire most about Leicester, the thing that's impressed me the most, is how little the pressure has affected them. I find that genuinely astonishing. Because I was like Dicko, we were, like everybody, you, you think there is a wobble coming, there will be a wobble. There came, there came a point where you thought, I think they can survive with a wobble. Because there was about six January, weeks ago. January, wasn't it? There was no, about six weeks ago, I sort of looked at the, the table, and I won't pretend this was any great sort of oracle, but you looked at it and thought, hang on, I'm, I can't see Spurs. Spurs aren't going to win every game. Arsenal are going to continue to be Arsenal. City will continue to be City. I think Leicester... And there was a point at which I thought, hang on, Leicester can drop quite a lot of points and still win the league. Didn't think they'd do it with two games to spare. But the way the pressure hasn't got to them at all is fascinating. And I wonder whether that's partly because that's not something that would have applied had it been, say, Everton, who would have felt all that weight of history on them. Leicester knew that there is no history here. So that the pressure kind of didn't have that same meaning to the fans and to the players. And I think that perhaps played in their favour in the end. So it's the joys of, uh, of live radio or live podcast reporting. But Matt Dickinson has had uh, a little bit of a technological breakdown. I am told, I'm sure that he is fine, but he's no longer with us, meaning he's no longer on the podcast, not that he's died or anything. It's all good because there's more opportunity for us to talk and hear the sounds of, of our, own, our own voices. And so the voice I want to hear now is, is that of Ollie Kay. Uh, Ollie, I was struck by something Claudio Ranieri said, uh, which was, he was speaking on Italian television, and, and he said, you know, he got the job, he did some research, he saw that they finished the season really well, he saw they were playing really well under Pearson, and his first thought when he arrived was, I'm not going to change anything. You know, I might bring in some competition for, for certain for certain spots, but in preseason, my idea was like, you know, let's let's keep the same way of playing. 
And then he says, but then I realized we could go vertical really, really, really quickly, quicker than any team that I've ever been involved in. And I said, you know what? Let's change it. Let's just go north-south and let's attack very, very quickly to a degree that that we hadn't, that, that I'd never really done before. I mean, it seems so simple now, but it does take somebody to, to, to have a departure from what works, right? Yeah, and if you look at if you look at the way they play, it is it is extraordinarily quick. Whether it's the way they get the ball forward, or it's the speed with which Kante wins the ball and then and then turns it into a counter attack immediately. I mean, the, the speed of Vardy, the acceleration of Vardy, and the way that they use him by defending so deep and giving him so much space to attack. I mean, that is all. I suppose, with hindsight, it, it's all incredibly obvious, but it's it's probably, um, you know, it, it is taking it on a, a few degrees, I'd say, or, or several uh, degrees from, from the way they were playing on the pitch. It's, it's, it's roughly the same way. He's not, he's not changed much in terms of the style or behind the scenes, but obviously there has been a huge improvement, and I think probably a lot of people would, would have looked at it last um, summer and, and thought that there wasn't any room for improvement, but with a you know even if they were to sort of pick up where they left off and and have a really good season and 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 confound expectations it would be talking about a, an impressive mid-table finish rather than um, rather than anything like this well that's one of the things that strikes me because there, there's 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 been an obvious change in their style of play under Ranieri and 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 it you know it happened in the summer after Ranieri arrived but by the same token, there's a guy named named Dan Altman who's one of those um, sort of football analytics types, and he makes the point that last season Leicester had actually been really, really, really unlucky with his expected goals modeling and stuff like that. Especially once they signed Robert Hughes in January, they they started defending so much better. And then in the second part of last season, he makes the point that based on his models, they were the fifth or sixth best team in the Premier League. Now. I hasten to add that he says that because I think if any of us were to say that, you know, we would probably all lose our jobs and get laughed at and tarred and feathered. So, Rory, since you're generally used to this kind of treatment, um, mm-hmm. do you see that or do you find that excessive? Were they that good last season? I think they without were, Conte, they were much better than their league position for a long time suggested they were. There's not. I don't think that's a, a particularly revolutionary claim. They it but was, fifth or sixth best in the second half of the season. I think that's lo- well. Is that not logical by the results? Just they what they won what the last nine games they were almost they won I think eight of their last they nine. won eight of nine so that's that's the last quarter of the season they I would bet they were the best team in the league in the last quarter of the season which means that they it stands to reason that for the last half they'll be pretty high up yeah but there's a, there's a strange thing with it I mean this is I, I was trying to rationalise it and then I looked at those final nine games of, of last season and almost all of them were against teams that that either had been relegated or were about to be relegated or had nothing to play for. They are, it's a hugely impressive run of results, seven wins, one draw, one defeat in the Premier League. But you couldn't say that at any point they looked like a team that was going to turn the Premier League um, no. on on its head. It, it is, I mean, I, I spoke to Nigel Pearson back in February. Yes. He, at that point, was saying they're going to win the league. I could tell. And the reason, the reason is, apart from that, you know, Apart from that period mid-season where nothing was going for them, they were they were losing every week. You know, apart from that period, he felt at every point over the previous two years they have been performing to a real peak. And during that period when they dipped, they never let it get to them. They always 
persevered. The, the spirit never was was never endangered or damaged. And he felt that you know, whereas other teams he could see, you know, Arsenal, Tottenham, Man City, uh, never mind the others who had not even come close. Whereas those three teams were showing signs of cracking under the pressure of, of various sorts. He said that the pressure will just wash over this lot. They, they are an incredibly strong group. They believe in what they're doing, whether it's under Pearson or under Ranieri. And he felt that you know that they they would just achieve whatever the goal was because they achieved their goal in winning promotion. They achieved their goal in staying up. They've achieved their goal, which obviously goals were adjusted and expectations raised as the season went on. But psychologically, they dealt with it in a way that nobody expected them to, except perhaps those who knew the, the team best. It, it's a good question. It's a good point that you make there about the uh, about the the spirit and the unity of the team. I mean, you know, it's one of those cliches we often throw out there, but I think in this case, it's it may well apply. You know, whatever the nature of these guys is, there was a humility to them. The the the, the stars don't aren't really stars, maybe because it's their first taste of stardom and whatever else. It's the inevitable question: if Pearson had stayed. And he hadn't had those weird moments last year with the ostrich and Pat Murphy and all that nonsense. And they had made the exact same signings that they made this year. And, and Ollie, you've spent time with him. Do you think they would have they, they would have won the title? No, I think I. Uh, you I may mean, be I, listening. I've, I, I've got well. I, I, I'll um, I'll change my phone number. No, it, it's um, it's only right to give Pearson a lot of credit for for what Leicester have done, not only in getting them into the Premier League, but in keeping them in the Premier League and creating a system and a, a staff and, a, and a, you know, building foundations that, in his opinion and in the opinion of many others who have stayed on, including people who are very loyal to Ranieri now, they all feel that, that what Pearson has done is, is a huge part of it because Pearson came, sorry, that Ranieri came in and didn't really need to change very much whether it's tactically or whether it's off the field, whether it's the, the structural stuff, whether it's the recruitment stuff that everybody's very... But having said all of that, and having given all of that credit to, to Nigel Pearson, which I think is right, I mean, you have to say that they were not... They did not look like a team who were going to go on a, on a huge run and win the league under, under Pearson. And maybe, you know, it just takes a different approach, somebody coming in with a, a different touch, maybe a lighter touch in some ways, which isn't very often you'd say that of, a, of an Italian coach, but it was a lighter touch and it, it has lightened the, the the whole place from everything I'm told. It, it's, um, I mean, he, he's just sent them off in a in a different direction or, or, or propelled them upwards in a, in a way that nobody can possibly have, uh, have expected. And no, I, I don't think they would have won the league under Nigel Pearson and, and, and that's well defending his legacy in, in quite a big way. I think the, the question kind of answers itself, doesn't it? That, that there is no question that the chemistry at Leicester has been crucially important. You speak to any of their players, they, they have a very sort of unusual bond between the players that's been extremely helpful. That's not in doubt. The manager as well is part of the chemistry at the club, so it naturally follows that if the manager was different, even if the, the mythical Nigel Pearson of your imagination gab existed, who didn't call people ostriches and didn't clash with Pat Murphy and wasn't Nigel Pearson, so like some sort of Nigel Pearson with none of the bad bits, then even if that 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 sort of super Nigel Pearson existed, the chemistry would necessarily be different, so it probably wouldn't have worked to the same extent. They might have had, they might have finished fifth or sixth or fourth, but they, I think it's very unlikely they'd have won the title with Pearson, I agree with Ollie, entirely, and don't know Nigel Pearson. 
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Listen, so can speak more freely about him. All right, moving on to the reason they became champions. Chelsea, of course, came from behind 2-0 down against, uh, against Tottenham to draw 2-2. I'm sure we'll have more opportunities to talk about the job Pochettino did, and, and I think we all have a lot of respect for what Spurs achieved season long. But I want to ask you, Ollie, you were there, I, I was there as well, what looked like a psychological meltdown from Spurs with the, the, the nine yellows and whatever. Clattenburg has his own style. I, I think he could have used some reds early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, Dembele being in trouble for eye gouging. I, I thought, I mean, I, I think Dyer belongs in a straight jacket if he's going to do that late in the game. And, you know, and people go, oh, it's just frustration. You know, yeah, you know, I think that everybody's frustrated, right? But only certain people go and, and, and do some of these psychotic challenges at that stage. But is this something that, you know, you just kind of, is this something that, that surprised you? Because for so much of the season, Spurs had actually shown a lot of discipline, even in the face of, of adversity. Yeah, you would say that they are not, that they have not looked most this season like a, a team managed by a former Argentina central defender. Um, I think last night they they probably looked like that. But, you know, it was it was very bad tempered. It was it was rugged in a, sometimes in a good way, often in a bad way. And it was uh, you know there, there was a real lack of emotional control in the second half in particular. And there was some you know, there was some really horrible snidey stuff happening off the ball. I, I would say. Of, of both teams, I mean, it wasn't just Tottenham by any means. It was it was a game played in a you know very competitive spirit, but it was that old-fashioned competitive spirit which 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 we love or I love anyway um, was was overshadowed by a, a very modern, snidey, ugly spirit which I, I think did neither set of players um, any credit. And um, it's a shame to be saying that about. Um, Tottenham in a, in a season which they've they've performed so well and won so much admiration, but I, I thought they were um, I, I thought they let themselves down, and I can understand the frustration, but I I cannot understand why Dembele did what he did, and um, I mean that, that that was the main one, but yeah, there was all the pushing and shoving constantly throughout the game, and 
the pushing and shoving at the end, just hitting, ending up on his backside, which is, it's, I don't know, it, it, was, it, was, it was not a very dignified way to um, end, which, is, which probably Chelsea and, and their players and their, their fans will have found very funny to see Spurs losing their heads and, and losing their points and losing the, the chance for their first title in um, 55 years. It, and well, it'd be interesting to know. We, we will never know uh, how much of it was a response to provocation. Not that there's anything wrong with Chelsea provoking Spurs. That that's part of the test. But there was there's, there was a little bit of footage that emerged last night of William uh, sort of brushing the champion's crest on his arm in the direction of the Spurs players during the game, which is some would say a little bit uh, well irritating. I imagine. Are you, are you serious? Is he, I, honestly, please name names. I want to know. I want to know. Who would say something like to say like oh some, who would have a problem with that? Who would no, no. use that as some kind of justification? No, no, no. I'm not saying it's a justification. I'm saying that it, it indicates that there was a lot of kind of yeah. These, these are two local rivals who don't no, no. who don't like each I'm other. Not, yeah, I, don't, not, I have no problem. I mean, honestly, I, like as long I as William not, doesn't touch him, I have no problem what he does with it with it with, with, with I the am press. not saying that it's Chelsea's fault for what Spurs did. What Spurs did was a loss of control. I'm saying that it was a game of extremely heightened emotions and Spurs cracked a little bit, basically. That's what happened. It would be interesting to know, we will never know exactly kind of which flashpoints set things off, set them in that well, in well, train. But what's mysterious is some of this stuff happened early when things were going yeah. great for Spurs. Yeah. And, and, you know, and as a big England fan, I worry about that. I mean, Kyle Walker... Yeah, the, that, the, the, that the, 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 to me as well, yeah. Kyle Walker on, was it, was it on Pedro or, or Espiliqueta early they were, on? They were mainly on Pedro. That that was early in the game. Mm. You, you're two 0 up, and then this kind of stuff starts happening. You know, a dire going all dire at the end, whatever. You know, but and, and Mason, this is what you expect from him because the, the, there was only really one one bad one from Mason that wasn't. I know. I'm terrible. sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to. I want to have a go at Mason, but I, I don't understand where he fits into this into this team. He just he looks like a bad version of Cattermole, You know, relative to the other people who. But whatever. I, I don't want to get sidetracked on Mason. But I, I don't know. It, it, do, it does kind of make you wonder about sort of the, the, the collective loss. And, and it also and maybe, makes you wonder about the... is, is, there, is there a point to be made here about leadership? And, and the reason I ask this is that you've got a team with a lot of young players. Mm-hmm. The older players are people, you know, are, are 26, 27, people like Ericsson, people, I guess Lamela is, what, 25? Uh, Harry Kane's 25, around there. No, 22. No, 20, 20, or, or whatever. Um I guess right. he's been just looks long. like a 1950s yeah. businessman. But 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 you know, Vertonghen, they don't strike you as you know the kind of the, the kind of fire leader who can fight. I don't, I don't know. Is, I that, is that figure? Do we do we over, I, overrate the importance of that well, figure? It's more than that. Spurs are a very young team, and watching it last night, you thought this is a young team who don't know how to cope with this. That they have cracked. I wondered whether a it might spill over into a little bit more kind of. You would hope not. Obviously, I'm an enormous England fan as well. Uh, you'd hope not. It wouldn't sort of. We wouldn't linger into the Euros, but in terms of the experience, they are a young team. But Vertonghen's experience, Alderweireld's experience, Larissa's experience. There's enough there. Ericsson's well, Larissa's in goal. Yeah. Oh, Ericsson's another one. Do you think Ericsson? Can you imagine Ericsson shouting at his teammates? No. Ericsson shouting but at Dyer and Walker more and pulling than him up. One form of leadership. Yeah. I, I don't doubt that. It's just Ericsson doesn't feel you know, gifted as he is. Doesn't strike me as, no, as an obvious a leader kind of type. type you know. Up, but no. But do you think I, it would affect Spurs in the long run? Because that is a difficult well, thing to come back from. I, it's been suggested to me that Pochettino built a team like this without sort of the bigger senior veteran characters and without people who maybe he considered possibly slightly troublemakers, people who thought he knew better, uh, 
because he, he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do and how he wanted to work and, and he wanted to have control. And that's part of the reason why, you know, they can have double training sessions at Spurs and nobody complains. I think they're the only club in the Premier League, and we've talked about this, who can do it regularly and you don't have people complaining or bunking off. He got rid of some characters like that. He, he made a change with, uh, I think it was a, the, the, the team doctor, the physio, because he wanted that, that kind of power. Maybe in a game like this, mm. you know, it, it cost them a little. Ollie, you get the final word. Yeah, I, I, I thought it looked like there were instructions to, to Spurs players, you know, stand up to what Chelsea are doing. You know, don't let them bully you. And, and I think if you look at, at the um, the first five minutes, they were giving as good as they got. I mean, there was the, I think it was a Rose challenge, wasn't there? There was a Walker challenge. Um, and look, for, for one thing, I thought the referee didn't do a good job. He didn't control it. It reminded me a little of Howard Webb in the um, World Cup final where he needed to lay the law down very early Ooh, and stop it. But it's class. Come on. You, you, you know, early yellow cards, even an early red card, never mind this ruin the spectacle business. It, 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 it's got to be fair. It's, it can't, get, can't be allowed to get out of hand. And if you look at, if you look at the incidents um, one by one, I mean, I, I think it's probably a little harsh that we're just singling out Spurs, I think Chelsea, a lot of Chelsea players did things they shouldn't have, but the attempts to um, provoke uh, from Tottenham were were the things you wouldn't really normally see from Tottenham. I, I can't remember, was, was it Alderweireld or, or was it Vertonghen? Um, grabbing Diego, Costa by the neck. There was, um, with, with, with Diego Costa's jersey was Vertonghen. Vertonghen, hmm. but, but uh, Alderweireld did something I can't remember quite what it was. And he's a player who has barely even committed a foul no. all season. He's a guy named Toby. Come on. He's not committed exactly. a foul since November. It's exactly. insane. So world... it's, uh, I mean, it, it looked like a team who were trying to prove something in a different way. And I can totally understand why they wanted to stand up and, and impose themselves physically in a way that perhaps people thought that they couldn't. Um, and when they were winning 2-0, it all looked... Um, pretty laudable in terms of their um, ability to stay calm, even though they could have had a player sent off by then. But ultimately, yes, they, they, they did crack. And, and, and it's not where... It's, it's like Liverpool at Crystal Palace a couple of years ago. That's not where they lost the title. They lost the, t- the title mm. by um, West Brom. by dro- dropping silly points at, at times and giving themselves too much to do. And um, I don't like the phrase that, Les- that Spurs lost the title. No, exactly. Leicester exactly. won the title. No, Spurs I, haven't I, lost I, anything. I do agree. I do agree. And Spurs, Spurs would have been, if we're talking about bookies' odds and that kind of thing, Spurs would have been six favourites, I would think, at the start of the season. And, and they've done well if they finish second. And, and they've, they're, they're probably the one out of those six teams that can look, look at themselves and look at their season with even the slightest degree of uh, satisfaction. Big, big story uh, from, from last week. Uh, you know, there's that horrible word after tragedy called closure. I can't imagine that closure ever comes for the people who, who, who lost loved ones in, in Hillsborough or even or even just the ones who were there and, and witnessed the horror. But obviously, I think, what was it, three years after the uh, uh, the, the Hillsborough Independent Panel and, uh, and, and Dave Cameron's uh, apology on behalf of the nation finally came to court. And once again, uh, you know, we reaffirmed what I think many of us knew, uh, although maybe not to this degree, that there was a tremendous amount of... Uh, basic dishonesty uh, from, from the people that, that we expect to, to protect us and take care of us uh, in, the form of, uh, in the form of the police, uh, to some degree, I think the ambulance service as well. 
Ollie, you, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thought is, is, I mean, as you say, it, it isn't closure, it isn't justice for, for, for what's happened at all. I mean, uh, there can never be closure, there can never be justice for what's happened, but I think the widespread probably refusal in the past, whether it's media, whether it's opposition fans, whether it's authorities, etc., the, the refusal to accept the reality of that situation, um, of what happened that day and, and of how disgraceful it was, how inadequate the policing was and had been th- through English football for a long time, how inadequately fans were treated for a long, long time. And it was probably... You know, moving towards something like this at certain grounds, which weren't safe, at certain certain incidents, certain games, which were, which did have the potential for for things to go wrong. But so much went wrong that day. So many awful decisions were made in in the, in the lead up to um, the game, whether it was by the FA, whether it was by the South Yorkshire Police, failing to um, or, or entrusting the match to to a guy who was totally inexperienced to appeared to have um, sort of risen without trace through the um, through through South Yorkshire Police, whether it was Sheffield Wednesday who had that, that, that sort of inadequate stadium, uh, inadequate situation at that end of the ground, which had been neglected for years, and yet they'd still been get, given FA Cup semi-finals. And it, it, it's good that all of those failings have now been acknowledged and writ large in a way that, I mean, a lot of it was already out there. A lot of these failings were highlighted in the original Taylor report in um, in 1990. But you know, blame uh, has been um, attached now. Um, unlawful killing as a verdict has, has been attached now. There, there has been um, you know, the, the individual individual inquest rather than just treating the, this as a, as a mass of people who died due to due to an unfortunate set of events. It, it has been you know, there have been individual um, inquests and individual um, causes of death found. And, and you know, even to be talking about it, look, of course, it's not justice. Of course, it's not closure. But I think it's extremely important, not just for those people, not just for the people of Merseyside, not just for football fans, but it's important for this country to know that one of the greatest tragedies of recent times was... A miscarriage of justice. It was, it was caused by complete neglect, and it was followed by a travesty, which was the uh, which was the police cover-up and the the attempt to to pin the blame elsewhere, which is utterly disgraceful. And I, I, you know, I, I can you can understand how mistakes happen when people are out of their depth in their job, the 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 negligence of that age in terms of health and safety, and the several disasters that occurred of of similar type in, in different fields, but you cannot ever forgive the um, the, the cover-ups. And, and I, I hope it's for the cover-ups that people um, suffer and, and are made to pay the consequences of their actions. I think that's an incredibly important point. I think the, the there are two there's sort of two elements. I find it really hard to talk about Hillsborough, but the the there are two elements uh, to it. If if the de- disaster had occurred through negligence through incompetence through the mistakes of the police through and it, this is something that, that is very very important i think is the is the context of the time so as the evidence emerged first in the in terms of the panel and then 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 the inquests 
it should be remembered that, that the mistakes the police made came partly because of as a as a sort of as the end result, the sort of tragic end game of everything that had happened for the previous twenty I guess twenty five years since the rise of hooliganism and and I think you you should we should all be able to forgive people their mistakes and their even if they have horrible, horrible tragic consequences. That's one thing. And that that's some that's one thing for which the police and yeah, to, to a lesser extent, the ambulance service, Sheffield Wednesday, uh, the FA. Henry did a, an excellent piece the day after. Yeah, um, Henry Winter. That Henry Winter. It's worth going back and reading. It, very much worth. The FA have got questions to answer, and the, the, a lot of the anger has been directed rightly at South Yorkshire Police. There's been a lot of anger rightly directed at the Sun. Uh, the FA, to an extent, have questions to answer as well. Not as serious as South Yorkshire Police, but certainly serious questions to answer. Um, but there is the other element, and it's the other element that I think is the most malicious and and vindictive and difficult to deal with and that is what happened after the disaster if sh- the disaster had happened and South Yorkshire police had, had held their hands up and said we made some horrible mistakes this is this is this one is on us we take responsibility we will learn from this we are terribly sorry that would have been bad enough that would still have been an unimaginably awful experience for the families and the survivors to go through it's a huge word but what happened next borders on evil i i think what you just said is is extraordinary and, and just so, so important. And I speak as a foreigner, as a guest in this country. There is the dimension, obviously, of Hillsborough on the day and the tragic experience by the, by the families. But what I find remarkable is that you're talking about 27 years. You're talking about what, four prime ministers, a labor government, a conservative uh, government. You know, the fact that the Taylor report came out and you know, not that long afterwards. You know, the elements were there. And that this acceptance of the police version of events, this acceptance of nothing to see here, you know, you can make the point that, from the point of view of democracy, here it happened with with 96 people who went to a football match and didn't come home. It could happen with a nuclear leak. It could happen with going to war with another country. It could happen with stuff that affects millions and millions. And so even if you don't care about football, and if you don't care about football, you're probably not listening to my voice right now, but if you don't even care about football, if you don't care about Liverpool, if you don't care about Hillsborough, if you've had enough, just pause for a minute to think what happened and the level of cover-up and the level of collusion that went on for so long and the courage of some of these people who kept the campaign alive for so many years, and these aren't just sort of deluded people who lost parents or, or, or grandkids. Just imagine the courage that they showed for these past for, for these past two decades, and you know, and the fact that you know, eventually, be grateful that eventually we got to at least the truth, but but worry that it took so long. Hillsborough is not a football story. Hillsborough is not now twenty seven no. years on. It's not the the significance of Hillsborough is not really to do with football. It had huge seismic impact on on kind of how we viewed football and what football is there is a, a very strong argument to say that everything the premier league is all the sort of wonderful entertainment that leicester and all that has provided this year is built on the blood of the 96 but what Hillsborough, what hillsborough represents is something that's enormously more significant and that's evidence of what britain was in the 1970s and 1980s and that's something that needs to be analyzed by people vastly more intelligent than me i tweeted on the day of the the inquest and again it's something i'm not a subject it's not a subject i'm particularly eloquent on hillsborough so i find it very difficult but if you take the the route through the guildford four the birmingham six Ordreave, hillsborough 
everything that we've, we've unearthed about Jimmy Savile and, and all of the stuff, the horrible stuff that's come out, the country I grew I was born in 1982, the country I grew up in is not the country that it thought it was. And it's astonishing what was happening in this country in the 1980s. I'm the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist that you can possibly imagine. But that there needs to be a deep analysis of Britain's relationship with power, the deference for power, that led to all of these things happening. Right, moving on to some quick hits. Uh, some of us were expecting the mother of all anti-Wenger protests at the Emirates. Instead, all we got in Arsenal's 1-0 win over Norwich was a bit of a damp squid as only a minority seemed to participate. Ollie, in a weird way, does Wenger actually come out of this strengthened? I suppose in some ways he does. I mean, I think there's, there are two things. I think there's one, the sentiment of whether people think um, Wenger is the right person to lead Arsenal forward, whether they think they can win the league under Wenger, but beyond that, there, there is a feeling of, well, should we really be angrily voicing dissent towards Arsene Wenger? Does he not deserve more respect than that? And I think he does. There's a battle for fourth place going on involving uh, Manchester City, United and West Ham. Rory, your thoughts? Want to take this opportunity to praise West Ham and your pal Slavin Bilic? Yeah, I think West Ham probably slightly aggrieved, really, I guess, that uh, that Leicester and to, to some extent Spurs exist this season as they have been a, what would ordinarily be an extraordinary story and they've been kind of overlooked. I don't think they will get a Champions League place. I, th- I still think City will hold on uh, and Arsenal get third. But no, West Ham, brilliant season, uh, exciting times. Want to sign Cedric Bacambu. There you go. Manuel Pellegrini is grumpy. Uh, he plays his B team at Southampton. They're terrible, and they get rolled over. Apparently, he was resting them ahead of the Champions League semi-final with Real Madrid, which seems logical to me, but doesn't sit well with uh, with some City fans I encountered on Twitter who fear it could cost them a top four finish. Ollie, what's your take? Well, I, I was actually surprised he, he even played as many senior players as he did. If you look at his, his team selection in um, you know for that FA Cup tie at, at Chelsea, which was again I think seventy two hours before a uh, or before a big Champions League away game, he went with the with the kids that day. I, th- I thought he might, you know, whether whether City finish in the top four or not, probably doesn't matter to Pellegrini. Jurgen Klopp also played a bunch of guys few had ever heard of, uh, resting regulars ahead of the big European night, and uh, got pummeled by Francesco Guidolin's Swansea. But Roy, I guess that was okay with everybody, right? Uh, it's okay by me because uh, I'm delighted Swansea staying up. I think Francesco Ridolin seems like a very nice man. I think Liverpool's injury problems mean that it was probably inevitable. I know what Ollie means when he says that Pellegrini, it's the two sides of the same coin, uh, when he says that Pellegrini might have played too many first-teamers. So I guess, without question, I see what Klopp was doing. I do worry a defeat in the middle of two big games affects you negatively. Ollie, we assume that two out of Newcastle, Sunderland, and Norwich are going down, uh, though I, I think Palace could be relegated too. They're not safe mathematically. Wouldn't that be funny? Who are your two picks and why? Uh, Norwich, uh, because I think they have the toughest run-in. And uh, I've just done, as it's been waiting for this, I've just, I've just done a prediction thing for, for the last few results, and it's got Sunderland and Newcastle finishing level on 37 points and seemingly Sunderland staying up on goal difference. And the good news for Newcastle fans is that my predictions have been badly wrong all season, so uh, it looks like you're safe. We learned that hair-pulling is a form of uh, sex masochism and that uh, Louis van Gaal only wanted to come for two years, but Ed Woodward demanded, for, demanded three years. 
Roy, what's the more startling revelation for you? And any wise thoughts on the on-again, off-again arrival of Jose Mourinho, which is picking up steam again? My thoughts on the on-again, off-again arrival of Jose Mourinho are that the more noise there is, the more distant it is, because if Mourinho thought he had it, he would be quiet. So when the point to think he's got it is when he stops yeah, talking. This isn't just Duncan Castle's talking about it. This is Sam Wallace, too. stop leaking things. I was sure it was Mourinho, and I'd, I'm getting less sure, which, as in the same way as Oli mm-hmm. and his predictions means, I'm... Uh, He'll probably be appointed today. The sex masochism thing, I knew that that was a form of sex masochism. Real hair pulling. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not one that I indulge in, but I knew it existed. Uh, Gab, I've got a question for you. Your column was absolutely excellent. I really enjoyed it, much more than I normally do. You had a bit of a go at Mats Hummels, the Borussia Dortmund, and soon to be Bayern Munich central defender. Uh, Why are you so annoyed? I'm so annoyed that in the years that we all we all believe in fairy tales and heroes once again with Lester winning the title, Mats Hummels, the man who came through the ranks at Bayern Munich, was rejected by the wise head of Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, went to Borussia Dortmund, had a chance to return to Munich and said no. He seemed to buy into that, that whole thing. It was this narrative of, of Francesco Totti saying no to Real Madrid, Alan Shearer saying no to Manchester United. It means more. Uh, you're at a club where, where, where you've already won titles. You're a world champion. You play in front of the biggest crowds in Europe, four straight runnings. You have an exciting new manager. And now what? Now you want to go back? You want to join Bayern Munich? And there's nothing wrong if you, if you want to go for, to the traditional powers. But, my God, you're, you're, you stand for something. And you jump ship to your arch rival, just like Goetze before you, just like Lewandowski. But with Hummels, I think it hurts more because... Because he, he, he rejected them before. And, you know, I'm told that he's not going to make more money and, and whatever else. And it's not about that. And, you know, why would you go and, and, and just trade a, a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in the cage in that way? It'll be curious to see how it ends, too, because he's got a year left on his contract. There's even suggestions that Borussia Dortmund might say, hey, how about you sit for the next 12 months? As they did with Lewandowski. No, as they didn't do with Lewandowski because... Lewandowski actually played and played very well. Mm. And, uh, um, oh, you mean but you think they might, they might banish I, I, him to the reserves? I would lock him in a room for the next 12 months and see how he enjoyed that. Uh, or I would try to sell him to Manchester City or, or Real Madrid yeah. or whatever else. The one thing I did disagree with you in your column uh, was this, this fear that Dortmund won't be able to replace him. Uh, I think that Hummels is extremely good but is not, certainly not flawless, as anyone who watches him knows. I don't think I wrote that they weren't going to be able to replace him. Uh, perhaps I, I interpolated. I, I apologise. But I actually don't think it's that much of it. It's a blow to Dortmund, but I don't think in a football no, sense I, it's as much of a blow. I, I agree. In a football sense, I think Hummels, is, is, it's, it's more the symbolism mm. of, of, yeah. of what it stands for. It's the fact that somebody can come into your house and take your kids or, 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 or wife, you know, which I suppose... I mean, I think that's more serious. Yeah. More than homos? Especially if you've been homos engaging is very, in sex masochism. And homos is very handsome. Although he cut, he cut his hair now, so that, that type of sex masochism isn't Maybe quite that's as why. Maybe it was becoming too much of a risk. Clearly. During love play. <laughs> right. That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my guests today, Rory K. Smith, Ollie K., and uh, Matt Dickinson, who unfortunately had to leave us early. Uh, please press that subscribe button. We're going to be back next week. And remember, you can get exclusive football highlights free as part of your subscription. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. Just search The Times online. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. 
Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.